You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today, we have a unique episode, as it is not about a person, but instead a topic. And that topic is the first Western encounter with the island of Japan. Now, the reason this is a topic is that while we have the names of the Portuguese men who first reached Japan, we really don't know much about any of them, or even who exactly was the leader. And thus, we have a topic instead of a person. So, two quick notes about this episode. First, this will be a short program, simply because what we know about the topic is very limited. And what we have is pretty sketchy, so know that what you will hear involves some speculation. But as always, that's okay. We will do the best we can with what we have. And second, I have put a map of Japan on the website, explorerspodcast.com, in case you want to see where this story is taking place. To be honest, it's not essential for this episode, but it's there if you want it. So, let's get started. The opening of Japan. To begin, let's start with a little background about Japan and its relationship with the Western world circa 1540. In Europe, Japan was one of those legendary places. Men such as Marco Polo had written about the island to the east of China, which he called Sapango, but no European had ever visited there. The Chinese and other Asian kingdoms and lands had traded with Japan for centuries, but for the most part, the island had maintained its independence from outside powers. Kublai Khan had, twice, tried to invade Japan in the late 1200s, but he had been thwarted by great storms and fierce resistance by the Japanese. As for the political state of Japan at this time, it was chaotic. From 1467 to 1615, Japan was in an era called the Sengoku period. This was a time of near-constant civil war and social unrest. The emperor, while technically the ruler of Japan, had been marginalized, and hundreds of lords and clans fought for power. The Portuguese would reach Asia in 1498 when Vasco da Gama rounded the tip of Africa and landed in India. This was a critical moment in history as Europe was now linked directly to Asia. The Portuguese would thus spend the next 40-50 years exploring and building up a trade network throughout the region, including India, Sri Lanka, Malacca, the Spice Islands, and China. In some cases, the Portuguese used military power to seize ports or force the local authorities to allow them to set up trading posts and forts but just as often, the Portuguese negotiated the right to operate and trade at a specific location. In doing this, the Portuguese became the major European power in the Far East, and thus Portugal made a lot of money doing this as they dominated the flow of spices and silk and other goods from Asia to Europe. Eventually, the Spanish, Dutch, and English would flex their muscles in Asia, 
but at the time of our story, around 1540, the Portuguese were, by far, the most important European power. Now, if you wanted to trade in the Far East, the Portuguese, like many nations, sold licenses and rights to do such a thing. The Spanish had their famed Royal Fifth, which meant that one-fifth of all treasures and loot taken from the New World would go to the coffers of the Spanish crown. This caused a lot of trade to be conducted off the books to avoid paying this tax. Regarding the Portuguese in their growing trade network in Asia, just like with the Spanish in the New World, a lot of the trade would be done unofficially to avoid paying heavy taxes. What evolved in the Far East was a network of rogue merchants and traders operating outside of official channels. These were men who could not get a trading license, or had lost their licenses due to illegal trading, offending an important official, or some other offense. And many of these men were simple sailors and soldiers who saw an opportunity to make some serious money. They thought, why risk my life for someone else's fortune? Why not give it a go myself? And thus, we have the emergence of these rogue pirates slash merchants slash traders. But it's important to understand that they were not sailing carracks and galleons between Asia and Europe. Instead, they were using smaller local vessels with native crews and going between the various lands of Asia. It might be ivory or timber or medicines or incense from Siam or Bengal or Java or the Philippines going to China or India or Korea or wherever, anything that could net a man a solid profit. The Portuguese authorities often ignored these illicit deals. It wasn't worth their time and effort to crack down on these smugglers, plus they often benefited from these trade endeavors. Essentially, the attitude was what happened in the Far East stayed in the Far East. But you know where the Portuguese never went? Japan. This, despite the fact that they had been sailing up and down the Chinese coast for several decades. Now let's be clear, the Portuguese knew about Japan. They had held in their hands goods brought from the island, and they had talked to merchants who had visited Japanese ports. But the Portuguese had never ventured east to seek out these mysterious lands. And that sets the stage for our story. Our tale begins with three Portuguese men, Antonio Mota, Francisco Zimoto, and Antonio Peixuto, on board a large Chinese junk, which is a sailing ship. The ship, which had a crew of about a hundred, was filled with furs, bound for the Chinese port of Ningbo. Ningbo is located on Hangshao Bay, opposite Shanghai, at the mouth of the Qiantang River, an important commercial waterway in East China. It was September of 1543, although some speculate the year is actually 1542 but most historians agree that 1543 is the likely answer. So, who were these guys? How would they come to command a large Chinese ship? Well, we really don't know the answer. What we do know is these were a few of those rogue trader pirates that plied the waters of the region. Otherwise, we know nothing about the backgrounds of Moto, Zaimoto, and Peixutu. They may have been soldiers AWOL from a Portuguese ship. Again, we just don't know. Now, three notes about the men and the crew. One, of the Chinese crew, the only name we have is a sailor named Goho, who was described as educated, meaning he could read and write. Some sources say he was a scholar. All the rest of the men were nameless, simple sailors trying to make a living in a difficult world. Two, one of the three Portuguese, Antonio Peixutu, will never be mentioned again in our story. What happened to him is a mystery. Historians speculate that he died on the voyage, perhaps in a storm or due to some illness. Such fates were not uncommon for the era. No matter, Antonio Peixutu is gone from our tale, leaving Antonio Mota and Francisco Zimoto. Of these two men, we don't know which one was the commander of the trade endeavor. Perhaps there was never any such designation. From the scant information we have, Antonio Mota is the best guess to be the top guy, but that's mostly an educated guess. In the end, it's not really going to matter a whole lot. 
The junk with our Portuguese traders was thus heading up the Chinese coast in September of 1543. It was then that the ship was caught in a great storm. The junk would be pushed east about 500 miles, or 800 kilometers, before sighting land. The island was Tenigoshima, just off the southern tip of Japan. I'm not sure if I said that right, but I think it's pretty good. The island is oblong, with dimensions of about 60 by 20 kilometers, or 37 by 12 miles. The ship would anchor at a cove near Cape Kotakura, on the southernmost tip of the island. The date was September 23, 1543. The arrival of the ship brought out the locals, who were surprised to see the odd vessel. And even more surprising were the two strange-looking men with bushy beards. The local village chief, Nishimura, would greet the newcomers. However, no one could speak the other's language. But Nishimura knew how to write Chinese, so he was able to converse with Goho, the aforementioned man on the ship who could read and write. By this way, the two sides would converse and explain who they were and how they had come to this place. Go said the two strange men were southern barbarians and merchants. He also explained that the ship had been damaged and needed to be repaired. After giving the men on the ship someplace safe to stay, Nishimura would set out on a horse to Akagi, the seat of the island's ruler, about 50 kilometers to the north, or 30 miles. Today, Akagi is called Nishinomote. The feudal lord of the island was named Tokitaka, and he was only 15 years old. It was decided to bring the damaged junk to Akagi for repairs at the harbor. Due to the extensive damage the ship had suffered, it had to be hauled by two dozen rowboats up the coast. They made the journey in two days, the newcomers welcomed cordially by the locals and Lord Tokitaka. As for conversation, a priest, as well as a local woman, knew Chinese and were able to translate. The large junk would cause a sensation amongst the people, most who had never seen such a vessel. The ship would have to be overhauled and repaired. This included mending or replacing the rudder and sails. Now, the Portuguese men, with their strange clothing, pale skin, and thick beards, were, as you can imagine, objects of curiosity. But nothing caught the attention of the Japanese more than when Mota and Zimoto brought out their two arquebuses. The arquebus is an early musket. It was crude and clumsy compared to later versions, but its ability to spit fire and smoke and kill stuff made it almost magical to people who had never seen one before. A demonstration for Lord Tokitaka was arranged. There, Mota and Zimoto shot a duck out of the sky. And from that moment, warfare in Japan was transformed. The Japanese had known and used explosives, but the use of firearms was completely unknown. Lord Tokitaka and his advisors would immediately see the implications of the weapon, and an offer was made to buy the two arquebuses. Tokitaka reportedly paid 1,000 tails of gold for each of the guns. A tail is a unit of measurement. So how much is that? Well, 70 years later, when production of firearms was commonplace, an arquebus could be bought for two tails, and a common worker commanded six tails a month in wages. In short, the Portuguese traders, Mota and Zimoto, made a small fortune on the deal. Anyhow, shooting lessons were arranged to demonstrate to the Japanese the use of the arquebuses. But learning to use the weapons was not the most important thing in the mind of young Lord Tokitaka. He wanted to make more firearms. A couple of arquebuses were nice to have, but insignificant in any sort of military conflict. Thus, Lord Tokitaka would turn to his swordsmith and tell him to reverse-engineer the weapons. We'll talk about these implications in a bit, but for now, I want to stick with our Portuguese merchants. The Portuguese would remain in Tenigoshima for upwards of five months. They traded with the Japanese, and once their ship was repaired, they departed. Antonio Mota and Francisco Zimoto would return to China, or wherever they were headed, and there they and their crew would tell the story of the lands they had visited. 
Now, at this point, nothing is known about our Portuguese merchants. Both Antonio Mota and Francisco Zimoto would disappear into history. I like to think that they took their 1,000 measures of gold and went back to Portugal and lived out a nice life. But absolutely nothing is known about them after they departed Japan. But the implications of their voyage were enormous. Other Portuguese merchants heard about this new opportunity, and within a year, traders were making their way to Japan, including the island of Tanigoshima. Quick note here, Ferno Mendes Pinto, a Portuguese explorer and writer, would claim that he had reached Japan before Mota and Zimoto. He would even claim that he introduced firearms to Japan. However, Pinto was notorious for exaggerating, even lying, about his deeds. It doesn't mean that he didn't do a lot of cool stuff, but his claim of reaching Japan first is dubious. He likely arrived in Japan within a year of Mota and Zimoto, and he would be important in facilitating trade between Portugal and Japan, but most historians doubt he was the first European to reach the island. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I wanna teach you everything you need to know about US history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode where I'd like to tell you a story. A lot of people think of Japan as a closed society at this time where Europeans were not allowed or heavily restricted in their movements. And this would be true, but not until the early 1600s. Between 1543 and 1615, Europeans were allowed to move relatively freely around Japan. The Spanish, Dutch, English, and Portuguese all established trading stations in Japan. But the influence of these foreigners began to worry the Japanese, especially surrounding religion. In time, each of the European powers would be limited to a single port to conduct business. The Portuguese and the Spanish would ultimately be expelled from Japan because they kept trying to convert the people to Christianity. This was a terrible thing in the eyes of the Japanese crown, as the emperor was portrayed as a living god. They saw Christianity as a direct threat to their rule. Thus, the Portuguese and Spanish were shown the door. As for the English, they were still finding their footing at this time as a world power, and their endeavors in Japan just weren't making them much money. As a result, they would voluntarily depart. This left the Dutch as the only European power in the empire. By 1641, they were limited to a three-acre area of land on an island in Nagasaki's harbor. They were only allowed to go to the mainland once every year. And thus, Japan would be effectively blocked by foreign influences for the next 200 years, until American warships under Commodore Matthew Perry sailed into Edo Bay in 1853. 
but the brief window that opened between Japan and Europe in 1543 would forever alter the island. And this takes us back to Tanigoshima. Remember, the local lord, Tokitaka, had ordered his swordsmith to make more of these newly purchased weapons. The Japanese are legendarily very good at adopting new technologies, and the making of firearms was no exception. Within a year of getting their hands on the two arquebuses, the swordsmith of Tagigoshima would make ten replicas. Now, these were not perfect, as the Japanese struggled to get the spring mechanism in the breech to work correctly. However, in 1544, just a year after the first visit by the Portuguese, other trading ships would arrive on the island. According to legend, the swordsmith would trade his 17-year-old daughter to a visiting Portuguese captain in exchange for lessons in gunsmithing from the ship's blacksmith. From him, the Japanese metal workers were able to perfect their arquebuses. Whether this story is true, it is not known. By the way, the girl, Wasaka, was said to have led a miserable life, being married to the stranger from the west. A park in Nishinomote bears her name. Anyhow, the problems with the spring mechanism overcome, Tanigoshima would become the hub of firearms manufacturing in Japan. The weapon, initially called the Tanigoshima, and later the Teppo, would quickly be adopted by the samurai class and their foot soldiers. Tanigoshima Island would become a hub of gun making and produced upwards of 300,000 arquebuses over the next decade. It helped that Japan had access to quality copper and steel, plus gunpowder. Now, the adoption and mass production of firearms on such a scale was really astounding, and the introduction of the arquebus would alter the political makeup of Japan within a few decades. In the 1500s, Japan was in a constant state of civil war. Hundreds of warlords and clans fought for power and influence. By 1615, Japan would be unified under a powerful shogun working with the emperor. And the arquebus would play a key part in these events. By 1560, firearms were commonly used by the various factions on the island, and by 1575, the use of thousands of infantry with firearms would be a key factor in a major battle. As I said, the adoption and mass production of firearms on such a scale by the Japanese is really extraordinary. To demonstrate this, I want to mention the attempt by the Japanese to conquer Korea in 1592. In this conflict, which ultimately failed, 40,000 of the estimated 160,000 troops used firearms. That's an amazing number, considering the arquebus had been introduced on the island less than 50 years earlier. It is believed that by the end of the 16th century, the Japanese made more firearms than all of Europe combined. Interestingly, a book published in Japan in 1606, titled Teppo Ki, which translates as History of Guns, is a key source of us learning how that initial encounter with the Portuguese in 1543 changed the course of the nation. So that is it for our story on the opening of Japan. To be honest, it really wasn't much of a story of exploration, but instead one of opening of a known but mysterious land to the Western world. The primary explorers in our tale, Antonio Mota and Francisco Zimoto, are minor characters in the grand scheme of things, which is rare for this podcast. And the story is fascinating because it is not a tale of how Western powers came to a place and upended the region and conquered it. Japan was upended in a fashion, but instead of bowing to European powers, they took a key source of Western military might and made it their own. In doing this, they effectively locked down Japan from all foreign influence for 200 years. So, thank you for listening to this story. I hope you enjoyed it. Please take care. I will see you next time. The Explorers Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great shows. A couple of shows you might be interested in include Redacted History with Andre White, as well as History Uncovered.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 400 years ago, a trio of tiny kingdoms were perched on some damp islands off the coast of Europe. Within three short centuries, these islands would become the centre of an empire which ruled a quarter of the globe and on which the sun never set. I'm Samuel Hume, a historian of the British Empire, and my podcast Pax Britannica follows the people and events that built that empire into a global superpower. Learn the history of the British Empire by listening to Pax Britannica everywhere you find your podcasts, or go to pod.link slash pax.